The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thanks, Marie. Since I'm up here in what could be contended a role model position, I want to first of all tell you that the way I was sitting was very, very bad from a uh, traditional standpoint like this. I don't know if anybody noticed it. I do it to get my knees lower than my hips. And the traditional advice for a tall guy in a situation like this is to stack up a bunch of pillows. I've tried it many times. I tried it again tonight. It's very unstable, and the back tends to slump down at the back. So I just went back to my old style. At home and on retreats, I have three little short two-by-fours under the back and one under the front. That gives me the right slant with just a regular folding chair on it. Now, this is completely irrelevant to everybody except maybe you and maybe you. Uh, but I wanted to, I appreciated very much, Jeff, last week when you sort of went through all the different things. But I thought tall guys uh, sitting on the chairs that we have to have to do something because you do want those knees lower than the hips. So this is the only way I can do it without bringing my two by four pieces. Um, I'm speaking, as most of you know, if you've been here for coming to the last several weeks, um, in a series of um five talks on what in the Buddha's terminology was the the five spiritual faculties or powers. And uh, these are faculties of the mind which are helpful to move one along the path, usually talked about in the literature as being developed in meditation. They obviously can be developed in other ways, too. Um, three weeks ago, Cliff, Cliff, Cliff Clifford, Chris Clifford spoke of faith or confidence. And then Cheryl Hilton talked about effort the second week. Jeff, who's here tonight, spoke about mindfulness last week. I'm going to speak about concentration practice tonight. And then next week, uh, Jennifer Lemus will talk about wisdom. Those are the, the five uh, spiritual faculties or powers. And what I'm setting out to do tonight is, first of all, give an explanation of what I've come to view concentration practice as. Uh, secondly, we'll have uh, questions on anything I've said. Thirdly, I'd like to have a five-minute meditation when we all try to apply what I've been talking about. And then short question period after that. And I think we've got time to do that. Um, I'd like to concentrate for a few minutes on mindfulness and concentration. Uh, these are very, very closely related. Um, the I've heard Gil say even in the last few months, it's like two wheels on a chariot. Chariot's not going to move well without both wheels, or two wings on a bird are talked about in the uh, in the suttas. Um, they're really interdependent and necessary. They are the two main meditation practices in, in Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism that we're in the tradition of, the Theravadan. In my experience, mindfulness gets a lot more attention than concentration practice. But if you'll look at Adiodharma, you'll see that in, in 2005, Gil gave 
about, well, there are about eight tapes on concentration. It was a series he did. Also did that in 2003, and he did it in 1999, a shorter series. So Gil has put it out, but some way I definitely have gotten the impression that mindfulness, and I don't know how many of of you have had this experience, that mindfulness really does get a lot more attention than concentration practice. I don't mean just here, I mean at Spirit Rock, etc. Um, there are differences between mindfulness and concentration practice. Uh, I, I picked out three, three prominent ones. Focus of attention. In mindfulness practice, one has as broad a range of attention or a focus of attention as one can like you would on a, a, a wide-angle camera. Uh, anything that you perceive is fair game for noticing, labeling, if you do labeling. Concentration practice, very narrow focus of attention. In fact, you ordinarily, if not always, use an object. An object might be a flame. So in some traditions, that might be used. Uh, a vase. It can be any object. In our tradition, the Theravadan tradition, it's usually the breath. And more particularly, it's the breath where you feel it um, most intensely, where it's most apparent to you. Most of the people that I have read who write on concentration practice, as opposed to mindfulness practice, talk about the nose. In mindfulness practice, I've as often or more often had people point to the rising and falling of the abdomen. But the people that write mostly on concentration, at least what I read, it's, it's the nose. Now, I've heard, heard uh, uh, Shayla Catherine, or Shayla Catherine, in a recent publication talk about on concentration practice, just came out last fall. She talks about the end of the nose. Now, frankly, I get absolutely nothing that I can sense at the end of the nose. So that's not what I do. Um, uh, Richard Shankman, who just at the last day of the year, I think it was, came out with a book on concentration practice. It's very ironic. He got two books with people we, well, I know both of them, and I've got a hunch most of you probably know both of them, um, are out with uh, books on this concentration practice. Now, they're both focused on concentration practice a little further down the line and a little more developed than we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, but they definitely talk about um, aspects of what we're, we're talking about tonight. Gill, as a matter of fact, when he does concentration practice, he does have a place, he says, is about two inches below his navel. So it's not the whole abdomen, but it's a very localized place for him. And that was the only person that I've talked to or, or um, read about that, that is off the nose when it comes to concentration practice. Um, you don't, you, you do mindfulness everywhere, in the hall, in meditation, and obviously out in your daily life. You do it everywhere where you're awake. You don't do concentration practice out in the world very much. In fact, it would be very ill-advised if you were driving a tractor or a car or something else, because the, what can definitely happen and what you're really aiming for eventually in concentration practice is an absorbed state. You're probably not going to fall into that tonight because it takes a long time for people to be practicing this before they get into it. But it's not something you do outside of meditation ordinarily. 
they both have different ways of dealing with distractions. In um, uh, mindfulness practice, Gil will often say, if somebody's walking over what we used to have as a very creaky floor, when somebody's doing that, that's no problem. That is something to practice with, to note, to perhaps inquire as to why it irritates you so much when somebody does that. Um, in concentration practice, you don't want distractions, and you try to set yourself up so they don't occur, so that you would be in a very quiet environment where you'd be protected from those kinds of distractions because you're not, as you would in mindfulness, noting these things. You're just trying to keep your attention on the object without removing it and having a a distraction pull you away. Um, Let me talk for a few minutes about how the Buddha viewed concentration. Now, the word is samadhi that we're translating as, and I see it's the title of... uh, of Richard's book. That's the word we're translating as concentration. Um, better or more, Gill and other people saying the same thing, said a really a little broader definition um, uh, would be to talk about the settling or the stabilizing of the mind um, or the collecting of the mind. And Gill, I've even heard talk about collecting the heart mind and body, bringing everything together um, as, a, as a really a better, a broader definition. Now, we're all acquainted with concentration. Um, it's something that we all have done at some point or another, and we probably end up doing it most every day, a little bit at least. And we can talk about an assassin having and needing concentration, for their target at the last moment when they're going to do that kind of thing. Obviously not a very good thing to be doing. You can talk about an athlete having a lot of concentration. Tiger Woods is known for his great concentration, and his his uh, great golf scores are often attributed to that skill, not so much even his body, but his concentration. And a student writing a paper, which we've all done, some point in the process we concentrate it. Now, the, the uh, Buddha is not going to call any of those. You know, some are obviously off the map in terms of not being very skillful like the assassin. But, gee, writing a paper, is that, a, that doesn't sound on the, on the surface as to be such a bad thing. Well, the guru said that to be what he calls skillful or right meditation, it needs to be motivated by generosity or compassion or loving kindness, or something of that nature. Uh, and it would never be motivated by hatred or greed or delusion. And you've heard that troika before, probably. Um, now, even the student writing the paper, if you were like me, I was doing it to get a good grade. And I might even slant the paper a little bit in the direction of what I thought the biases of the person reading it would be if I knew enough to do that. Um, Also, the athlete concentrating, Tiger Woods, well, he's obviously not doing it really for generosity, loving kindness, and compassion, although I think he does do some good things with his money. But nevertheless, he's going for uh, being on top of that particular um, 
contest and then uh, having the financial rewards that come with it. Um, so there is a difference, definitely, in the way uh, the Buddha is using the term. Um, there are three major stages that I drew out of the uh, literature for the development of concentration. There's a preparatory stage, which is usually a very long stage for most people. And we're not going to get anywhere beyond that tonight and only putting our toes in the water of it. Then there's what's called access uh, concentration. And that's, that really refers to access into full concentration. It's sort of a a place where one comes to where you developed a good deal of concentration, but there is a decision to make um, that I'll talk about in a minute and whether one goes back into mindfulness or continues on into the absorptions of what are called the jhanas, which is uh, what these books are really both about. Um, what one deals with primarily in preparatory concentration um, are the hindrances, distractions. There's undoubtedly many, many more than five, but the Buddha talked about five particular hindrances, which seem to be pretty universal and pretty difficult to deal with for most people. And these are often personified in terms of a character mythical character called Mara that the, the guru, de, that the um, uh, Buddha dealt with in his uh, enlightenment. Um, Mara personified, but really is the kind of tendencies and temptations that are developed out of our own mind. And the first one, the one that comes up very often, sense pleasure. Um, sometimes it's called sensual pleasure. Um, when I was thinking of an example for that, I thought, boy, one that really bothers me on retreats are meals. Uh, I don't think of meals that much. I love meals, but I don't think of them that much except when I'm on retreat. And when I'm on retreat, they become looming large. Uh, I'm look, thinking, what, am, what are we going to have this time? And uh, uh, I hope it's not that. That's a pretty rare notion, but uh, I, I get to thinking about that. So that's a, a hindrance that I need to deal with. Ill will, we, I think, know what is um, what this means. Uh, what's wrong with him? He didn't ask me to the party, and I asked him to one last month. Uh, what's wrong with him? Or is there something wrong with me? It might become a ill will toward oneself, if not toward another. Sloth and torpor, which I think is better uh, translated as drowsiness, um, sort of a fogginess. Um, I never had trouble with sleepiness when I did mindfulness practice for years. Never happened. When I started doing concentration practice, I was sleeping in every single session. And it was, you know, the horrible experience with your head dropping and you pull it up and drops again. I mean, that is a lousy way to spend an hour. So um, anyway, that uh, that was that was my experience in starting. And frankly, I still have a lot of trouble with that in concentration practice. Um, doubt can come up as a hindrance. You know, is this practice really going to help me? Uh, am I doing it right? Uh, that kind of thing. Um 
those are the hindrances, and as I say, there are many other things that can distract one and interfere when uh, when one is doing concentration practice, as when one is doing mindfulness practice. It's not the hindrances don't just attack one in the uh, concentration. Um, takes a lot of effort at the beginning of concentration practice, and it takes a long time. Um, the effort is sometimes analogized to writing a paper or writing this talk. I had I loved doing the reading, and and uh, actually I went up and heard uh, Richard uh, several weeks ago at uh, uh, Spirit Rock talking on his book, and it was just terrific. He's going to come here. Is it the 8th of February? Is it the 8th of February? I highly recommend that if you get at all interested in this subject. Although he's going to take a very historical point of view, and um, but he's very, very good uh, presenter of this material. At any rate, um, say writing a paper, a lot of effort sometimes sitting down, getting in front of the computer and getting started. Then as your interest grows, you might become absolutely what we loosely call absorbed. And uh, now you don't want to be disturbed when somebody calls you on the phone or something. So um, the same thing happens when one is running. I don't know how many have had the experience of if you're going off for a four or five mile run, ooh, that first quarter mile, you're out of breath. And then what is loosely called the second wind flips in and it becomes much easier. And then, if you go long enough, uh, often can get into what is loosely called runner's high, when you're, there's sort of an effortlessness to it. Same thing with this, except extended with this concentration practice, except spread over a much longer period of time. I'm talking about literally years. Now, some can have some kind of knack for this, but it's pretty unusual. People work at this generally harder than they work at mindfulness practice, at least according to. I have no, I can't tell you that from experience, but I can tell you that from what I read. I haven't been at this for years. Um, another thing that one needs to recognize is that the meditation practice, the um, concentration practice doesn't develop linearly. It's not like you start here and you have a nice steady climb over time. You can really have setbacks. This one reason that was pointed out uh, that this can happen is that you can dislodge material in your psyche that just sort of comes up and is very disturbing. Now, this can, one of the, te- when I talked about my sleepiness w- with one of the teachers on a retreat, um, they said, well, maybe this is resistance. Your sleepiness, not because, because I, I was getting plenty of sleep. This could be resistance to something that's been flipped up out of your unconscious and your defense is to get sleepy. Um, but at any rate, these kinds of things can uh, can occur to make the linear progression very jagged. Um, okay, that's all I'm going to say about preparatory concentration. Access concentration... That you get, you get to this point and there's a little or no effort. You really are, and, and it's not just little or no effort to keep the hindrances at bay. There is a joy or happiness that kicks in. Concentration practice is sometimes called um, the wet path because of its joy and happiness. And mindfulness is the dry path 
because you usually don't have that occurring, or certainly not as often as somebody who's gotten to access concentration. At this time, too, you're, you've got a great deal of stability of mind, calmness of mind. And that is really important because a stable mind sees much more clearly. Again, I can't speak to you from hard experience because I haven't gotten to access concentration, but that's what I read in the literature. It's like a camera on a tripod. You can hold a camera and you might feel that you're being very still. You're not seeing yourself shake. But if you're taking a long exposure, that's going to show up in that picture because you are not stable like you would be on a tripod. Well, that's what you get to with concentration practice. And this is what a major, major contribution of concentration practice is to mindfulness practice, building that really stable, calm mind state that you can get into after years of practice with a lot less effort than at first and can apply to your mindfulness practice. Um, At access concentration, some people simply return and some teachers teach to return to mindfulness. Use the stability you've gained and get back into mindfulness, that that's the real the, the real game you should be in. Um, others go on into more and more concentration into what I mentioned earlier as the absorption states talked about in these books, um, the jhanas. The jhanas, which I've We'll just say a couple things about to titillate you. Um, the things can really be different. These are altered states of consciousness. Um, these are things where it, in the literature it talks about um, extrasensory capacities developing, uh, things that would be ordinarily thought to be sort of superhuman. Now, the, the, um, the Buddha said to all his monks, if you ever have this and you develop any of these things, do not ever do it in public. I mean, he was very um, worried about people, about other people thinking ill of the monks for this kind of behavior and more for the monks getting proud of their capacities. And I think it's that latter um, fear that is behind a lot of teachers in our tradition really not getting into these. Um, Jack Cornfield, I know, will coach people on the jhanas on long retreats, but generally you don't hear them spoken of, at least I haven't, at, at Spirit Rock. It might be a little different now with, with Richard up there. Um, but there is a fear that this kind of thing will be a big distraction to one's following the path either through getting into pride, if anything's these developed, and they don't really in themselves any superhuman capacities. They don't move one toward awakening. They just happen to happen. And I experienced that a lot in my previous Hindu practice because there they were sort of gone for. And not me, but a lot of people did have these kinds of different kinds of experiences. So some people go back to mindfulness practice with this increased stability. Others go on into the uh, jhanas, and I'll let you explore those things if you want to. Um, 
Some teachers start with meditation, with mindfulness practice. That's certainly, I think, the emphasis here in, in IMC. And others, Gil has told me, will definitely, that he knows, uh, start with concentration practice. Um, let me talk just last about preparation for uh, concentration practice. Um, as in many things, in Buddhist practice, ethics is where it starts. That's the foundation. And with regard to concentration practice, practice particularly, uh, Gill has said you can't really be, be practicing concentration if you've got a lot of remorsefulness about what you did to your neighbor recently or your friend or your spouse, um, or if you have ill will or a lack of integrity. It clouds up the mind. It really interferes with concentration practice with mindfulness practice, too. Um, so getting your ethical house in order is, is important. A second thing is memorization. It seems like if you're going to use the analogy of a muscle, it's the same muscle that you need to develop for both memorization and concentration practice. So by memorizing, which Gill always assigns people, usually I think it's the Metta Sutta, to um, to memorize if whenever he teaches concentration practice, uh, because that is it's a good auxiliary practice. Then um, I didn't read this in others, but Gill has definitely talked about sort of a psychological softening um, that you need if you're into a lot of self-judgment. It's not going to work very well. You need to be much more of a mind of self-forgiveness. And some people, he's actually recommended, get psychological counseling because their their, uh, self-critic was so strong that it made the concentration practice virtually impossible to even get started with. Um, Short-range preparation, um, I, I listed four things here. Uh, You need a comfortable environment. I think I mentioned that before. Um, If you've got a pain in your knee in in mindfulness practice, okay, you work with that. That's fine. But you're not looking for that sort of thing in concentration practice. So you want to be comfortable. That doesn't mean that you're slouching in a chair or something. You you know, you've all practiced enough, I'm sure, to know that a straight back is going to have you more comfortable longer than any kind of slouching would be. So um, you um, you want to be comfortable. Um, you want then to let go of tensions, just like you would starting any meditation. And you want to relax. Um, Gil has suggested things like maybe a cup of tea. I've never actually tried this sort of thing. Uh, relaxing by having a cup of tea, a walk, a shower. Any of these things, uh, if you're going to really uh, get into the relaxed state, that would be uh, most helpful. A little short inspirational reading, whether it's a paragraph or a sentence. I try to do that always in my regular morning meditations. In fact, somebody in one of my groups gave me a book by the Dalai Lama, which is daily meditations. They're they're a paragraph, very short. And uh, I find that that kind of thing just really puts me... In a, in a much better place to start a meditation. Now, this is mindfulness that I'm usually doing in the morning, uh, but um, it would be the same for concentration. And then something that I took not very seriously for a long time in my practice, 
and have taken it much more seriously, is setting an intention. When you sit down for meditation, whether it's mindfulness or concentration, just really making a resolution. You know, I'm going to keep my attention on the object, if it's concentration practice, and not be distracted. And some way, psychologically, that makes me much more likely to keep my attention on the object or to be uh, practicing better from a mindfulness standpoint than if I hadn't done the uh, intention. And then when you actually begin practice, it's better, one would think, well, if I'm going to watch this object in concentration practice, I'm just going to lock on. And the problem with locking on, as opposed to, say, just resting one's attention on the object, is that the locking will tend to bring tension into your body. Uh, you might not feel it, but if you were real sensitive, you probably would. Um, so, to, and of course, this is something very subtle, and how how you translate from what I'm suggesting into doing it is it's difficult, but resting the attention rather than locking on to the object is, um, is what's recommended. Um, and then when it comes to the hindrances, rather than a real strong push away um, or a suppression, releasing the hindrances. Uh, Gil has often said uh, that he'll make a response in a labeling fashion to an unwanted thought or even pain, not now or later, just with a brief mental recognition, recognizing the hindrance, but just later. We'll deal with that later. And with he says that's been very successful for him in having some of these things go away. Um, in concentration practice, there's always this balance between effort and relaxation. Now, the better interpretation, or the one I chose to take when I was on uh, retreat and getting so sleepy was, Gil said to me, well, I think you're just maybe a little heavy on the relaxation side, and you're going to need to ramp up the effort side a little bit. And that made a great deal of sense to me, and it, it, um, it worked some while I, uh, while I was there. Um, in concentration practice, it's very important um, momentum. This is one, I'm sure this is true in mindfulness but uh, practice, but you really need to stick to it. The analogy is often given of trying to start a fire with two sticks. And if you rub the sticks together for two minutes or a minute, and then you go get a cup of tea, put the sticks down, and you come back and you rub them together again, and you keep interrupting yourself with whether it's taking a pee or going for a walk, you're just not going to get the fire from the sticks. Same thing for the concentration uh, practice. It really needs to be done, done daily, and done done regularly. Um, I'll contradict what I just said a little bit by saying where concentration practices is most often done successfully is is on a retreat, simply because you take have enough time and there is enough momentum, multiple meditations during the day, several days in a row. That's where you make the greatest progress. Um, 
One of the aids that I've used and uh, is generally recommended uh, is counting in breaths or out breaths, usually out breaths. Um, in fact, when I was when I started doing this practice, which wasn't a long time ago, I used my fingers too. I found it was very helpful. Uh, my fingers were resting on my knees, and when I did one, I would I wouldn't it wouldn't be noticeable to anybody else. But I just put out a little pressure on one finger, two, three, ten. You don't go above ten, or at least it's not recommended, because then you tend to get into competitiveness. And I definitely <laughs> noticed that. I noticed I got up to 123 once, and I had a lot of pride about that. <laughs> um, but that's not that's not developing the practice. That's sort of milking a hindrance <laughs> of, of competitiveness. So. Um, it's up to 10 and start again at 1. And it's constantly said when you're starting, should be no discouragement if you can't get past 2 or 3. 4 is real progress before a hindrance takes you away and you notice your mind is wandering or, you know, something's got your attention going another direction. Um, I would like to stop now. We've gone about 37 minutes. Or no, yeah, I guess we've gone about 30 minutes. And see what questions there are. And then I'd like to try five minutes of uh, concentration meditation, however you do it, and then have questions again. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about concentration and chronic pain. Um, is it possible to practice concentration with chronic pain? Well, I have definitely read that if you can really develop this, you will go beyond pain. But I'm talking about here from what I've read, and I have no experience, um, that 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 is some time. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't start concentration practice expecting it to take you out of pain very quickly at all. Uh, people really, really do talk about years on this. Jeff, I think you've had some experience with the concentration as well as the mindfulness, I think more than me. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any other question, any other answer to that or about getting beyond pain? Um, yeah. yeah, it's on. Um, I think it, it, from my experience and what I read, it, it could be hard to become very concentrated if the pain was itself uh, concentrated or hard. Um, if it's something that is less severe, it could be even be used as a point of of, of concentration. Um, in other words, keeping the mind there, but and but it would require not. Not allowing yourself to get into a story about it, because the story then right away the mind is spinning. Um, but um, I found that when I have become more concentrated, any any discomfort in the body um, virtually vanishes, um, and then that's a point of concentration too. At the the second jhana, um, I think the first jhana is usually focused on the head, and the second. Um, is kind of the whole body. And so after a while, you might even notice it's like, oh, this is weird. I don't feel any discomfort. It's as though I could sit here for 
forever, as though I'd never need to move. Um, and these notions just kind of fly by. But um, so I don't know if I answered the, the question. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to have you with expectations that you can sort of go out and do the practice like we're talking about tonight and you're going to get beyond pain. Definitely if you get to access concentration, that is where these kinds of things uh, occur like and into the jhanas. But that that's going to take some practice if you haven't done this before. Any other questions about what? Yeah. I was just curious, um, because you said some, most people takes a long time and some people just have a knack. And I was curious if you think that somebody that, like Tiger Woods, who has kind of built or fostered a concentration in one area might be one of the people that could, like, just kind of translate that to something else. Like, what sort of person, you know what I'm saying? I think so. Um, I'd, I'd switch just a little bit. I definitely think there are psychological types for whom it is much easier to concert, or let me say, become absorbed than other types. Um, persons, um, in fact, I wrote a dissertation on this some years ago um, in this Hindu tradition because I noticed about around me Equally good practitioners, all serious practitioners with 15, 16 years experience, some were getting absorbed and having all kinds of weird experiences, some kriyas and you know various things, involuntary body movements and so on. Others, just as long as practitioners, clearly never did get absorbed. And I wonder, well, what's the difference? So I gave, I had four, I had eight women and eight men but and separated according to people that had a lot of experiences and some and the others didn't. And then the psychological testing, they would be very, very different. Um, I, I, I won't get into the, if anybody's interested, I can talk to you afterwards. Well, I don't know if you're interested in the particular tests, um, but there's a big difference in the profile. And unfortunately, I'm a person who doesn't get absorbed at all. I mean, I never, in all my 25 years of meditation, have ever gotten into a state that I thought I could really label absorption. Uh, whereas this, with the Hindu practice, that was really sort of the aim. You became absorbed on the guru with the notion that you become what you meditate on. So you meditate on the realized being to realize what he realized. But that never happened for me. But a lot of people around me, it did. So um, it depends, um, I think, heavily on what kind of psychological type you are as to whether you're going to get into the jhanas. Now, that doesn't mean you might not get to at all to access. I hope someday to get to access meditation, get to that stability of mind that allows me to see more clearly and apply it to mindfulness. But frankly, I don't have a great deal of hope of ever getting into the jhanas because they're very much like the previous practice was for 15 years, and I never got anywhere there in that direction. Thank goodness, in the Buddhist tradition, it's not regarded as the only way to awakening, but, uh, it, but concentration to access anyway is very helpful to mindfulness. I'm sorry, is that 
give, give you some. But I don't know how to do Tiger. I don't know how, how he is on uh, his psychological type or anything. In fact, I would think he'd be more like me probably, uh, actually, and not so into absorptions. But he had, he's got such discipline. That's where it comes from. Any other questions before we try five minutes of uh, this practice? Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, you mentioned, like, the intention and being of not of ill will or greed or desire. But how do you, what then is the purpose in how... When you set out to attempt concentration or start a practice, the intention seems to be inward. So is this towards an outward betterment? How do you make that a... I'm not being clear. No, 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 I think so. But one of the very main, and the one I'm talking about tonight, is getting your mind calm getting it stable. A calm mind is a stable mind. A stable mind sees more clearly, which is what you eventually, what you want to do in mindfulness practice. You also just want to do it in general in Buddhist practice. And it's, we're doing this to see more clearly. That's moving us on the way to awakening. So it's seeing more clearly through a more stable mind not the kind of fragmented mind that we all, I presume, experience when we just sit down to meditate. Monkey mind. The mind's going all kinds of ways. Concentration is bringing it together, is is um, stabilizing it, like the tripod with the camera analogy. I That's the way I'd answer that most simply. Is there then a larger intention of applying it to a greater good? You had stated that the Buddha said you have to approach it from this direction of being towards a greater good, betterment, loving kindness towards a larger oh, oh, oh. being. He was talking about the, mo- oh, I see what you're going back to the motivations that he was, yeah, he was saying the kind of concentration he, well, you know that if you are, let me see how I best answer that. What I was talking about there was um, the motivations that he said needed to be in play to make this um, the kinds of concentration he's talking about. Because, um, you know, I'm sort of wrapped up in my words here. Maybe somebody else has got a better answer from what I've said. I'm not I'm not sure exactly how to, to how to address that. Yeah. Um, yeah, generally, when you answer to what is it aiming toward, it's aiming toward a stable mind. And I think what the Buddha is saying is, you're not going to get to a stable mind if you are motivated by greed or by some kind of ill will. Uh, you just won't make it. You will make it if you are motivated more by loving kindness, by compassion, the, it's not, I've never read specifically that this makes you more compassionate, but a stable mind sees more clearly. And that's what you're trying to do through this meditation. I bet somebody does write somewhere that it does make you more compassionate. I didn't read it. Yeah. Um, also, as um, 
It's probably not real all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I've never experienced that, and I've never read anything about that. I don't know if there's anything to suggest. Yeah, Jeff has a suggestion. And Bruce, I wonder if you've done this. You've got to suggest something. Great. Um, I find that for myself, it's kind of like that. The, no, the, the end of the nostrils isn't enough to hold my attention. Um, perhaps if I get a little bit more concentrated. But in order to get there, I usually use a couple other things, too. Um, what else do I use? Um, sort of in, in, in grain. So, hmm, what else? You go to oh, another might, object? Maybe a mantra or something, yeah. Ah. I might use within with the inhale breath, and it kind of continues to echo in my mind something like, I am at peace, something like that. And so that's sort of resonant there. And um, fairly soon, uh, I wouldn't begin noticing a tingling or something somewhere, usually in my head or face. And so that can, so that it's almost like holding that. You're supposed to have a one-pointed focus, so that's a technical definition, but... My mind is usually a little too busy to to be satisfied with just one thing. It's like more, more, more. So mm-hmm. the important thing is to is to realize um, sort of a peacefulness that can begin and hold the sense of it rather than a story about it. And um, that's Bruce. You were going to say something? Uh, well, thanks. Jeff. Sometimes what's uh, suggested is a touch point. Um, to be, become aware of another point on your body, a regular uh, awareness. So maybe it's a finger, uh, your butt on the cushion, whatever. Um, pick a point and stick with it. So you just switch objects. Only at that point. Mm-hmm. Only at that point where, you know, at at the exhale. So you you know you can. So you're you're still. Um, I mean, between the exhale and the inhale. Because that can really become prolonged because your breathing slows down tremendously. Mm-hmm. So you may not be breathing for quite a while. <laughs> so where do you go? So, yeah, touch point. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it is 9 o'clock. I've got a hunch people would just as soon get going. So let's end. And if there's any other questions, you've got two people here that are more expert or more experienced than me on this. And I will be glad to answer questions. I'm sure they will, too. So thank you.